So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pause to worship you. We pause to just acknowledge the mystery and the miracle that you are in our midst. Thank you for your powerful presence in all of our lives. Lord, I thank you for this congregation, for each person here today. Thank you for the privilege it is to gather. And Lord, thank you for your faithfulness in the year that just was. And Lord, give us hope that you will be faithful in the coming year. Lord, as we consider our lives, Lord, for a lot of us, there's difficult things, painful things, broken things. Lord, I pray for hope in our lives in those areas. Lord, as we look at our world, and Lord, with the tensions in the Middle East right now, with those horrible fires in Australia, um, Lord, we just, we just lift up those situations to you, and Lord, we just worship you and acknowledge that you are the King of Kings, that you are sovereign, even when our world and sometimes our lives feel out of control. And Lord, where we're struggling with faith to believe that, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you will pour out in all of our lives and give us hope and courage and faith and peace that you are the one, that you are the one we love and want to follow, even from our place of brokenness. So Lord, again, thank you for this gathered community of people. And I just ask and pray, Holy Spirit, would you take the words you've given me? Would you take the songs we're going to sing, Lord? Would you take all of this and would you transform it into something that's real and something that will make a difference in these people's lives? Only you can do that, Spirit of God. We just cry out to you. Touch your people and be glorified today. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you see the sign behind me, it says James. And that's because we've been in a series where we are studying a small letter in the New Testament called James. Now, we did James chapters 1 to 3 before Christmas. And then during the Advent and Christmas season, we kind of took a break from that. And now we're going to start with chapter 4 and go to the end of the book. So brace yourself, we're, we're, we're going back to James. Now, just before we do that, though, I want to, well, it is, it is James. Let me just say this. So Luke, don't do my slide yet. But the very first verse of James 4, chapter 1, or, ver, sorry, James chapter 4, verse 1, starts up by saying, what causes fights and quarrels among you? So here's my first question for you this morning. So how was time with your family over the holiday season? <laughs> well, some of you laughed, and I, I hope and pray for all of you that you had wonderful times with your family over the holiday season. I'm going to be really raw and honest with you and say, we had some tough times with my family this holiday season. In fact, if I was going to be honest, I would, if someone asked me, so how was your Christmas, I find it hard to answer because we actually had some difficult conflicts in my family that was really hard and painful over Christmas. And you know, it's interesting, I, you know, I shared this sermon obviously in the earlier service, and I've talked to different people who've come to me and said, oh my, like, we had family meltdowns this Christmas too, and so they were good to me. But anyway, I just want to encourage you, if that was yours, and just to say, hey, you know what? It's family, right? We, we often joke about we can choose our friends, but our family is our family. And sometimes there's conflicts, and that's never fun or easy, but it is the reality. 
So I think we're prepared to accept the reality of fights and quarrels and tensions in families, but this letter that we're going to study is talking about fights and quarrels and tensions in God's church. And I think that's where we get messed up because we think it should not be. We're followers of Jesus. We should be like, be able to overcome that. Like, why do we have fights and quarrels and why does James have to address this? Well, like probably many of you, there's lots of skeptics. I want, I want to read you a quote from one. It's a Jewish philosopher from the 17th century named, named uh, Baruch Spinoza. And he was no lover of his Jewish background or of the Christian faith in any way, a very secular humanist philosopher. But he had this to say. He said, I've often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all, that they should quarrel with such rancorous animosity. Don't you love that? We never use that word anymore. Rancorous animosity. Now, I grew up in church, and I've been a pastor since 1988, so I think I can sadly say this with some authority. I've been to some congregation meetings that were like rancorous animosity, and not very proud of that, and some of those memories are very painful for me, and I know lots of people who have even walked away from church and Christianity because they've been to some of those meetings. So, sorry that that sounds like such a depressing thing to think about, but I think we have to honestly just face the realities that within spiritual community, even though it's not supposed to be, there are conflicts. And that's what James is going to address. Now, in addressing this in the passage we're going to get to today, um, James has, in my opinion, one clear antidote or one clear way for us to walk through the reality of conflict in our lives and in our church. And that is simply humility. And so I've entitled the message today, Developing a Posture of Humility. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the people I admire, um, you know, one of the character traits that I admire the most is humility. I, I, especially when you meet someone who's just so good at certain things, and yet they have such a humility about them. And that's just that, that's something that just really encourages me or I really admire a lot. Well, since I've already given an illustration from a 17th century philosopher, I think we'll, we'll go to modern times and we'll go to another passion of mine, which is the sport of hockey. And I know those of you that are here in this service are all going to be secretly looking at your phones for the Canada-Russia game. That's, I think, going to, does it start at noon? What? Yeah. yeah, okay, it does. Okay, so you're saying hurry up with this sermon. Okay, we'll pick her up here. I, I want to watch that game too. Anyway, in the world of sports... One athlete that I've always admired because of this trait of humility is probably the world's greatest hockey player, Wayne Gretzky. Recently, I was listening to an interview of some sports analysts that were talking about the book that Wayne wrote a couple years ago called 99 Stories of the Game. And in that book, they just went on about how he could so eloquently describe all of these other incredible hockey players through the history. And he talked about Jean Beliveau and Phil Esposito and you know, some of you old-timers like me, you'll remember those names. But he just talked about um, those amazing players and yet, interestingly, never talked about himself. So, Luke, if you'll just give me my, my little slide there with a picture of Wayne's book. Apparently, Wayne said, you'll never catch me bragging about goals, but I'll talk all you want about my assists. Just kind of like that perspective. So, I know I could pick 
lots of more noble characters to illustrate humility. But, you know, that was just for you sports fans out there so that, you know, you might keep listening to me today. Anyway, no matter what field or genre, I think many of us would agree, it is such an admirable character trait to, to, to be someone of humility. And so the message today is, how do we develop a posture of humility? And I'm going to suggest to you that what James is going to teach us is that to do that, we need to examine our motives, we need to examine our allegiance, and we need to examine our obedience. So, now before we get to our chapter, I probably need to give you a little bit of a review of what's already gone on in the first three chapters of James. But I'm going to do that by showing you that this theme of humility actually started right at the very beginning. It's a theme that I would suggest to you goes all through the book. But I have those verses up on the screen, and I just want to read them to you. So back in chapter 1, James said, Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. And in chapter 1, James is talking about having joy and perseverance in the midst of the struggles of life. And so he's addressing these people who are in that place and saying, hey, if you are in humble circumstances, that's a good thing. Embrace that. And then later in, in verse 21, he says, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Then, then when you jump to chapter 2, now chapter 2, the word humble or humility is never used, but the whole theme of the chapter is summed up in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So that whole chapter is about the pride and arrogance that is exposed through showing favoritism and how followers of Jesus are to be ones that aren't that way, but that walk in humility. So that's chapter 2. Then we go to chapter 3. Um, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So James basically in, in that passage is is, is contrasting worldly wisdom from spiritual wisdom or godly wisdom and how it is so characterized by humility. And then, of course, the two verses that we'll look at today in James 4, 6. And this is James quoting Proverbs when he says, God opposes the proud but shows favor, or some translation gives grace to the humble. And then James 4, 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, before, or humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So, Developing a posture of humility in the midst of all of our messy humanity. So, James chapter 4. I'm going to have the scripture up on the screen, but if you have a Bible or you want to look it up on your phone, um, this is going to be New International Version if you're wondering. But um, we're going to look at James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. So, let's first read 1 to 3. And this first section is about examining our motives. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Well, sorry to say, but James is not a soft-spoken book. He is like nails you. So I just want to say that this, is, this ain't nothing yet. I just want to warn you, it kind of gets worse. So he's, he's going to nail us today, but I hope you can hear and understand that this isn't my word. These are James's words, okay? But it's pretty tough words for us. So, so how do we unpack this? And I'm suggesting to you 
that at the core of these verses, James is saying to us, examine your motives. It's really hard to do. Now, years ago, a friend of mine said, I've never had a pure motive in my life. Now, we laugh, but think about it for a moment. It's kind of true, isn't it? If we're going to be really, really honest, yes, we have very good motives at times, but there's always that selfish part that we struggle with, right? There's of, of, you know, kind of there might be this subtle thing of what's in it for me. And I think he was just illustrating to me the honesty of this struggle we have. And I think that's what James is trying to, trying to bring out here. He, he says, examine your motives, examine your desires. What are your inner personal desires? Now, desires are good. We have lots of really good desires. Like we, we want to be valued. We want life to be purposeful and meaningful. Those are really good desires for us to have. But within that conflict of our humanity, there can also be the selfish side of our desires that, you know, maybe, maybe more like, we, yes, we want the val- to be valued, to be respected and all that, but maybe some of that bleeds into we kind of want status. We kind of want to be recognized. We, we love the recognition, the pats on the back, the, the, the being asked, the being noticed, the... You know, that some of that stuff that, that feeds us. And so what James is trying to say here is that when we give in to that and, and let that side of our desires take over, that's when these quarrels and fights happen. You see, in the context of the, of, of the, the early church that this letter was written to, in their culture and in their society, these people were poor and basically had no chance of improving their status in their culture. However, when they became Christians and they were in the church, all of a sudden they were in this new situation where there was some possibility of having some status and some, some value. And again, there was good and bad in that. But again, in, in some of that desire for recognition and status and to be known, there was conflict and there was, there was some pretty extreme fighting here that he's talking about. So, James is telling us, examine your motives, examine your desires. That's really hard to do. Now, he talks, too, about coveting and the whole thing of how we covet often due to comparison, right? And so we all kind of do it. Like, how do you respond when you look around at others and it just seems like, why does life seem easier for them? Why does everything seem to go well for those people? Why do those people get asked? How come they get recognition? How come they get listened to? How come they get promotions? It's hard for us to not feel some of that covetness or that jealousy or that envy inside of ourselves. And that can be something that is hard to face and hard, hard to examine in our lives. A number of years ago, a local radio personality um, moved back to Saskatchewan and made this comment about Saskatchewan people. This person said, Saskatchewan people tend to be more in the line of when people have it good or are prosperous, our attitude is generally must be nice rather than good for you. And his whole shtick is, let's become good for you people. So, so let me ask you that when you, when you look at your motives, when you see people that seem to have an easier life, that seem to, it, things go better for them, they get asked, they get promoted, they get opportunity, and you're feeling that envy and jealousy, and, or, or they talk about their vacations or their trips or they have a better car, whatever. And inside, we just want to go, yeah, it must be nice. Can we not celebrate with good for you? So, all that to say, 
I'm just trying to illustrate how it's really hard for us. We're all human. We're all broken. We've all been hurt. We've all felt at times that we've been mistreated or overlooked, and that hurts. And so, but James is basically exposing when we let our desires and our hurts and our motives go unchecked, it can actually get pretty ugly. And that's why he uses some of the language he does here. In fact, he talks about consequences that they're really tough consequences. Because basically what James is saying is, is that if we, if we don't examine our motives and, and keep those right before God, we, we actually begin to have unanswered prayer in our life. And, and what, he's, what he's sort of contrasting here is that earlier in the book, he was talking about praying for wisdom. And James was saying, guess what? If you lack wisdom, pray to God, and God would love to give you wisdom. That's what he does. If you're truly humble and go to God and say, I don't know what the heck am I doing. I need your wisdom. God loves to answer that prayer. But he's saying what you guys are doing is that you're praying for your own selfish desires. You're praying for God to work things out in your life in the way you think God should work them out. And he's saying that's actually pride, not humility. And so that's the contrast, and that's why he's saying you, get, you don't get because you're praying with wrong motives. You're praying for your own selfish desires and the things that you want to see happen. And so those are tough consequences. He says one other really extreme thing in this passage, though. I don't know if you caught it. But he said when things get really ugly, you would even kill to get what you want. Well, that seems really extreme. Don't know about that culture at that time. I'm going to assume today that none of you are murderers in this room. But let me ask you this question. It's a really hard question. If when we get hurt, offended, and then because of that hurt or offense, we cut people off, could that be a form of emotional or spiritual murder? I've been really challenged on this in my life. The reason that I can ask that question so clearly is because guilty is charged. You know, it's sad, but it's, you know, I've seen it. I've seen the church foyer where people are milling around and like, it's bless you, great to see you, shake the hand, the hug, the big smile, and then there's that person. And we can just coldly avoid eye contact and walk right by and just hang on to all the anger and hurt and bitterness. I wonder if, even though we, you know, that kill part seems pretty extreme, but Basically, James is saying, when we let all of this go unchecked, it gets that extreme. And I think that doesn't reflect the church of Jesus Christ. That doesn't reflect the kind of brothers and sisters in Christ we're called to be. And that's hard. Now, let me just say, for some of you, you're in situations where we're we're, we're talking about abuse and very serious wrongs and boundaries and situations like that are totally right and good. So I just, I just want to say that. But you know what? Most of the time, I would say that in our relationships, and especially in how we get along as brothers and sisters in Christ, let's, let's be very humble in our posture to each other. Let's not walk in spiritual or emotional murder. But let's realize the consequences of a posture of pride rather than a posture of humility. So yeah, it's a really, really strong word from James. So, Point number one in developing a posture of humility is to examine our motives. The next verses, he's going to talk about examining our allegiance. So let's read um, from verse four to six. 
And again, the language is going to get harder. Are you ready? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So right off, James is like, you adulterers. Like, what's the deal here? Why is he saying that? Now, James is writing to mainly a group of Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians in the first century would have been very familiar with the Old Testament or what they called the Torah, the ancient Hebrew scriptures. And in the ancient Hebrew scriptures, the whole idea of adultery, spiritual adultery, was a metaphor that God often used. Now, when we first hear that, that can sound, you know, pretty harsh, pretty weird, perhaps. But, but let me try to have you understand it, perhaps from a positive point of view. You're wondering, well, how can that be a positive view? Here, here. The reason that God uses the term adultery for spiritual unfaithfulness is because when God made a commitment or a covenant to his people, he saw it like marriage. Basically, when God called his people, he made a covenant. He said, I'm mar- it's like we're married now. We have that kind of committed covenant relationship. So when the people would serve other gods or forget him or stray away or flirt with other cultures to God, that was adultery. And again, it wasn't just out of anger, but it was more so out of love that he was saying, you're my spouse, you're my bride, and you're cheating on me. And that hurts me because I love you and I want to be in committed relationship with you. So that's, that's the picture. And that's the picture that James is saying to these people. So, so when he says friendship with the world is hatred to God, we can, yes, we have to consider the whole idea of the world and the systems of the world and how we get caught up in the systems of our world, how we get distracted by them, how we compromise in them. That's all very true. But what this is mostly about is God fighting for our allegiance. What he's crying out to us to say is, who are you most committed to? He's saying to us as followers of Jesus that it's the same contract. In fact, it's an even deeper contract. Jesus talked about the church and his followers as his bride. He passionately loves us and wants us to love him with that kind of allegiance that we would in a beautiful, committed relationship. That's the heart of God. And that's why the language is so strong here. And so I I think we need to see that. You know, God here is described as being jealous for us. I know we're used to thinking about jealousy in negative terms, and most often it is. But the idea, again, in Scripture about a jealous God isn't a controlling God or a God that's trying to push himself on us or a God that's just vindictive. It's none of that at all. The picture is this God that loves you so much that this is how he sees our relationship. And so he's jealous for us in the sense that he's jealous for our allegiance. He wants to be the one that we're closest to, that we follow the most The one that we're in that covenant, committed relationship with. He's jealous for that. In fact, James adds this New Testament 
followers of Jesus' picture by saying, verse, verse 5, or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? He's not only just made a covenant or a contract with us, but he's put his spirit within us. It is so intimate to God to know us closely that his very spirit resides in us when we follow him. And so, when we cozy up to the world, when we flirt with the world or however you want to imagine it, we're hurting the one that loves us. And that's what he's calling out for here. Who are you most allegiant? Where is your allegiance? So that's James's heart here for the church, for all of us. Where is our allegiance? So to develop a posture of humility, we need to examine our motives and we need to examine our allegiance. And now in the last verses, James is basically going to give us like a prescription of how to develop a posture of humility. And I'll I'll call this section examining our obedience. So let's read from 7 to 10. Verse 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Wow. Talk about strong language here. Talk about contradictory language. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I go, well, wait. I thought that the Christian life was supposed to be about joy. And what are you saying here, James? Weep? Wail? Mourn? Turn your laughter to mourning? Like, like, what is he saying here? Is he introducing a new type of Christianity that's, you know, are we all just supposed to beat ourselves up all the time and live miserably and that's, that's the mark of our spirituality? I think that would contradict the rest of Scripture. So I think we've got to look closely at what is James trying to say here? Well, let's look at what the progression of what he's saying here. So verse 7 he starts with, he says, submit yourselves then to God. So you want to develop a posture of humility to walk through the conflict and difficult things in your life? It begins with submission. And basically that just means that we humble ourselves before God. Submit means that we, we turn from pride that says, I've got to figure this out. I've got to find a way to make God happy enough with me that I can figure out a way to get back into right relationship with him. That may sound logical to a degree, but it's actually pride. Because a spirit of humility says, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm struggling, and I desperately need God. And that's why Jesus came. So it's within that context that he says, okay, start by humbling yourself, submitting yourself to God. And in that, resist the devil. Now, there's lots of teaching in Scripture on strategies of how to resist the devil. And there are many, many good strategies. I'm not going to get into those today. But what I do want to suggest to you is that James here gives us actually the most effective strategy to resist the devil. And that's the very next verse, which is, come near to God. Draw near to God. You want to resist the temptations and the lies of the devil. The number one way to combat that is to draw near to God is to come so close to God that truth and light completely dispels darkness. That's the picture he's giving here. 
You know, Satan, our enemy's greatest strategy is the battle of the mind. And it's in our mind that he wants to announce all of these lies that we tend to believe. And they're lies like, you're too broken. You're too sinful. You're too messed up. You're too far gone. It's been too long. God would be disappointed in you. In fact, he might even be angry with you because you're such a screw-up. I wouldn't go near God. He's just going to reject you like everyone else does. God is holy and you're not, so you're toast. You better figure things out and get yourself right with God before you could even dare think of going near him. Had any of those thoughts in your head? We never say those ones out loud. Those are the inner ones. But let me just say to you, those are from the pit of hell. Those are lies of our great enemy, Satan, who wants to do nothing more than to keep us from drawing near to God. When we have a posture of pride rather than a posture of humility, we think we got to figure it out. We think we got to clean ourselves up. We think we got to find a way to get God to love us or even like us. And it's all the time we're trying that, we are, it's a posture of pride. It's not a posture of humility. And what is James telling us? He's saying to resist the devil, to submit to God, to, to come into, you, you come near, you draw near to God. And what does God do? When, when we come near in that broken way, he says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. See, when we draw near to God, guess what he does? He wants to forgive us. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to wash us. He wants to renew us. That's why we draw near. So when, we're draw- so when he's doing that, then it says, and this is the hard part, grieve and mourn and wail, change your laughter to mourning, joy to gloom. What's that about? Well, let me suggest to you, it's, I think it's about a couple things. Yes, it's about true repentance. There is a side of true repentance that feels a remorse and a sadness for our sin and for our brokenness. That, that's a real thing. But I think another part of this grief and mourning and changing our laughter, I think a big part of that is really the regret of wasted time. The regret that that we didn't understand that we can draw near to God in all of our blackness and brokenness and patheticness that he doesn't look at it that way. He always wants us to draw near. And yet we live in all of this pain that we can't draw near to God because we're just way too messed up. And so part of this weeping and wailing is, what, God? I wasted all this time trying to think that I could find a way to get you to accept me, that I could find a way to figure things out enough so that I would be okay with you. I wasted all that time. It was, I mourn and I hate that time because all along you've been saying, draw near to me. I love you. I died for you. I want to forgive you. I want to cleanse you. I want to be in this relationship with you that's like a marriage where I'm number one, you're number one, and that's our relationship because I'm for you, I'm with you, I love you, I believe in you. Those are all the truths that God says to you no matter how broken and messed up you feel right now. And your enemy will do anything possible to keep you from drawing near. Can I encourage you to resist the devil by saying no to those lies and drawing near to God? I believe that's what James is saying because he says when this happens, when this true repentance happens, when God washes us, when we draw near to him, 
Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, when we lay down our pride of thinking that we've got to figure it out, that we've got to clean ourselves up, that we got, when we lay down all of that pride and actually embrace true broken humility that says, God, I desperately need you, that's when we have a posture of humility. And that's when God can do all that God wants. That's when he lifts us up. When we humble ourselves, when we come with all our mess and brokenness, he lifts us up. So, to develop a posture of humility, I believe this text teaches us that we need to examine our motives, examine our allegiance, and then examine our obedience. So as we conclude this message today in responding together, just a couple questions. I guess the first question, how is your posture today? Remember, the posture of pride is, I need to figure it out. The posture of pride is actually, I'm not sure God's enough. When we don't draw near to God because we think we're too sinful or too far gone, in a sense we're saying to God, Jesus dying on the cross wasn't enough. It's not enough for me. I'm too messed up for that. That, I'm sorry, but that's spiritual pride. Jesus died to take all of our brokenness and to bring us to forgiveness. We just need to draw near. So can I encourage you today to lay down the posture of pride and put on a posture of humility that says, you know what? Your Father, your loving Father God says, come to me with your brokenness. Come to me with all of your mess. Come to me. I'm the one who died for that. I'm the one who came to forgive, to heal, to restore. Come to me. So what is our posture? And what, what, what keeps you today from drawing near? And ask the worship team to come. We're going to respond with a song called The Wonderful Cross. And this song begins with the old hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and we sing these words. We sing, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. So let me encourage you, when we sing that verse, it's it's our opportunity to repent and say, God, pour contempt on my pride. Break my pride. I lay my pride down. Give it to him. So we have that opportunity when we sing that. And then later, the the course of the song, we sing, Oh, the wonderful cross. And it ends by saying, All who gather here, by grace, draw near. All who gather here, by grace, draw near. Believe the truth of your God who loves you and is for you, who wants to forgive you and restore you and give you hope for this year ahead. Draw near to him. Let's draw near to him.